This is Big Man Tyrone, and you're about to watch the MTG Cabal cast with your hosts, Wood, Thirsty, and Reptar. Sub to us on all your podcast networks at MTG Cabal Cast and YouTube. Alrighty, guys, welcome to the newest episode of the Cabalcast. This is going to be kind of a unique one. We haven't really done an episode like this before. Uh, so, we're actually, for those of you that follow us on Twitter, there was a tweet that we retweeted and said, this is a great example of what we call the invisibles. So after discussing topics, each of us literally thought this tweet was so important to MTG finance and the LGS perspective, especially that we decided to do a deep dive in an episode about it. So uh, for those of you, we will have the link in the video description. This is a tweet by listener elves that is literally about the invisibles, as we call them. So without further ado, let's get started. Uh, so the, the top level of tweet that I have right now basically uh, talks about who the invisibles are as an LGS go or somebody that plays in an LGS and how you should set your expectations of this group, not in like, oh, because you need to treat them with kid gloves, but because they don't necessarily follow what goes on with the RC in regards to Commander they like to do things at their own pace. And so that's kind of what the tweet is, but that idea is pretty applicable all the way down. And I, I think one of the most important parts about this tweet is literally, like, Listener Elf says, the player who gets a pre-con for their birthday and leaves it unchanged. They buy boosters and may put some other cards in it. That's exactly a perfect description of who we're talking yeah. about here. They're not your FNM grinders. They're not you know, they show up for pre-releases, right? Mm -hmm. Because they think it's a cool chance to get new cards. Yep. And that's probably it. Yep. Uh, the Invisibles that I have experience with at a local level are basically those people, but they're a little more whalish. So they do come out to pre-release events, but they don't come to play. They were coming because I was there vending on behalf of, let's say, Troll and Toad at the time. And I had duels with me. I had high-end stuff. So, you know to interact with a vendor and to trade up or trade in what they had at the time for something bigger and better for commander that was their time to do it you know effectively quarterly throughout the year they would come out to these events these uh, the invisibles that i know are a little more unique in that they do draft a lot themselves but it's because each of them buys a box and I'm never quite sure where because it either sounds like they keep going to different stores between where they live and where I live or they order online. So it seems like in regards to, um, what's the word? Brand, can't think of it. Allegiance, there it is. Uh, oh. They have no real uh, allegiance, especially because nobody really sells singles in the area anymore. There's one store, and if they can make it in time because it's at a mall that closes at 7 p.m. like on the weekends, so be it. And these people are, the, to me, less atypical than I, th I think they're less atypical than I, I really believe, and they are the invisibles. These are the people that I believe are, are the invisibles, and these are the people that kind of power, you know, the commander market because it's not like these people run one deck you know they're running every now and then one of them hits me up looking for duels but it's not because he's looking to upgrade one deck he has five six seven decks and now is the time where he can you know afford another duel to put in one of the other decks and i i think too these are the people that 
you know, they'll have one set of cards and proxy up the rest, which may not seem like it has a huge influence on MTG finance because, you know, you're not, you are literally just like, all right, you're buying one UC, you're buying one, whatever. Mm -hmm. And it's not, they, they make up for it, not in volume of cards, but in volume of players. Yes. I distinctly remember a kid came in, said, Hey, my friends are playing EDH and or, or sorry they're playing you know we called it type x back in the day okay they're just playing kitchen table yeah and you know they've got these really good decks and i want to build something that competes and i remember sitting down with him and literally building cascade junt you know when that was a thing way back yeah. in the day in standard and then lo and behold what happens next week kid's friend comes in and says hey you built my friend this really good deck Escalation. I want to do something that's even more yeah. broken. So I built him Tinker Blightsteel because nobody like these. These are the people. They don't necessarily have rules. It's all house rules. They're learning the game. It's like when you first started yep. and you were getting a grasp for it. And when you look at a Grand Prix and you see the players that show up, that is a fraction of a percent of the people that play this game. Mm-hmm. Those two to three thousand people that show up at a sealed modern standard legacy is different Whatever. story. But the people that show up for those events, that's a very small minor percentage, even in the immediate area, of people that play the game. And it's incredibly disingenuous. And I this was something that really hit home when I was working at Miniature Market. When we would average six hundred orders a day. There would be people that built entire decks out of sub $3 cards because it's what they had available to them mm-hmm. to buy. And they would spend a lot of money over the course of the year. And they would be local. I never saw them at an event. They didn't have a DCI number when you looked it up at Miniature Market. Mm-hmm. Even though they got their singles from us and lived in the immediate vicinity, they never showed up to an event. Yep. And I, I think that, you know, one of the keys of this tweet is it dives into that and how this is largely a group that is ignored, not just by the rules committee, but by players as well. And when we rant and scream about changes to the reserve list, changes to the rules, whatever, people are forgetting about this large component of the player population that really does have an effect, not just on the finances of the game, but the game as a whole. Mm -hmm. And I think it's disingenuous to really just write those people off oh, absolutely and uh, as i think in the quarterly earnings calls watsy likes to attempt to give a total number of players for the game and they can't because they can't estimate this group they have to attempt to estimate it based on like box sales across various locations which i'm sure is either more of a tangled mess or less because of amazon because at least now they know where how many unique addresses those orders are going to right so you can yeah. try and best guess your way through but you're right the, this is the largest player base effectively for the game just the people you don't realize i don't like i don't use the word or the term barnacle that often but that's effectively what these people are they're going you know they cling to this game and they're just going to be you know below the water level and just there you know they're going for better or for worse come feast or famine they'll be playing this game and buying in or buying what they need at their own pace 
And it's not difficult, I don't think, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, as an LGS to serve those people because they'll come in and they'll buy what they need if you have it when they feel like it. As a, a player or you know that's trading or a vendor on site that doesn't work with these people all that often, like I was doing where I would come in and sit down at a pre-release, that's a little more different because you have to either ignore them or attempt to hit their market without understanding who they are, what they are looking for, and what they can afford. Uh, for me, that was different because between the stores that I've played in over the years, I've met most of these people, and I'm friends with them on Facebook. I'm in their EDH group chat. So I have an idea, or had an idea of what they were looking for, and it was a lot easier for me to kind of, you know, roll this up. And it was all over the place. Like I said, we have the one guy will hit me up looking for duels every now and again, looking to upgrade uh, his stuff. Uh, somebody else in the group was looking to get rid of... Let's see, he traded that guy for a Eureka, wanted to get rid of a Mox Diamond for a Cradle. And so it's like all this kind of stuff. It's the arms race that you mentioned about, for, but for me, it's like amp because these guys, like I said, they don't spend a lot on this game in the grand scheme of things, but when they do, they're buying... You know, boxes to draft, or they're squirreling it for larger reserve list cards. They are not the kind of people that are going to have more than one copy of a lot of these high-end things. I doubt more of many of them have more than one. What is it? Crypt? If it hasn't been, if they didn't open it in Double Masters or Uma or at, you know every set uh, EMA, we know whatever. Yeah. Set, same with Force of Will, right? They're not going out and buying a lot of reprints like that. They'll hold on to their one and then sell the rest to re-up. And yeah, and I think especially as an LGS, the important thing about these players is they're your floor. Because while they don't necessarily come in often, they're pretty consistent about coming in. Yep. New set hits, like you said, buy a draft set, try buy a set booster, whatever. And that's basically your earnings floor. And these are the guys that, you know, because every standard season, people buy their deck and then they'll trade in that deck for another deck. People are pretty static in their modern decks and mm -hmm. their legacy decks. You know, they've got the deck that they play and you can't necessarily count on them for consistent, reliable income. These invisibles, that's your floor. Yep. You know, they may not stockpile UCs or anything, but, you know, consistently that guy's going to come to you periodically and say, hey, kind of want to upgrade this. Yep. Kind of want to get a Mox Diamond. Kind of want to get a I, Cradle. Kind of want to get I a I actually have a, a really good... Uh, anecdote about this. So a couple of years ago when I was one of the only collection buyers in the area, I happened upon a heavy foil collection and it was a father-son uh, combo that were, wanted to get out of the game. Um, some of their stuff had been water damaged based on the company that they owned and they wanted to put more money back into the company. So I sat down with them and when I met, I was like, I know, I know the son. I've seen him at the store. Sure enough, a pre-release is able, able to, you know, put it all together. And I went through, I, I priced it out. I bought the stuff. We were all agreeable. And then I was talking to uh, one of the managers at the LGS. I was like, yo, I just bought, like, these guys' collections. I had no idea they had this stuff. And the manager was like, yeah, the son just comes in and plays pre-release, but the father just buys all the insane foils that we have. So we would never, did you notice how there were never any in the case? Because they're always set aside for when he came in predictably, and he would just buy everything. That was the agreement they had effectively behind behind the scenes. Whatever they opened or uh, you know bought or traded for, he would just come in and scoop, no questions asked. 
that's amazing. Yeah. And and that's like that's what it is. It's the consistent this is my floor. I know they're going to come in regularly. They're going to do exactly this every day, you know, and that's or every week, yep. every quarter, whatever the case may be. And that's the most important part financially about the so-called invisibles is that they absolutely 1000 percent. Yeah, I I'm your floor. I'm the guy that you're going to set those foils aside from yep. aside for, because guess what? I'm going to come in and, you know, they're pre-sold. And that's the most important thing is that they are pre-sold. I've got it. I'm good to go. Yep. I think you can liken them to the comic book stores uh, subscriptions. You know, you yeah. want your, we, we talk about it every now and again. You want your subscriptions to effectively like attempt to pay your rent as a comic book store. That's how you know you're actually going to make overhead. And then, you know, that's what these players are a little uh, wider than just talking about invisibles. You know, you have your homers for the game, et cetera, that you can count on and come in and buy X, Y, or Z every couple of weeks or every set release. But like, a lot of those invisibles are like that. You can expect them to come in and walk through that door. And maybe when they don't, you're like, well, that's a little worrying. I wonder where they went. Because that's it. You only see them at a pre-release or when something new drops, you know, on a some kind of, you know, repeatable schedule, etc. Yeah. yeah, and I think, you know, and I, I highly encourage everyone to read this tweet because it really does do a perfect job of describing who these people are mm -hmm. uh and these these are the people that when lgs's complain and businesses complain about oh well here's the list wizards is designing sets around these people because they know it's their bread and butter too yes the list is there so these people that may not necessarily have the most money in the world that can't just drop 4k on a modern deck hey yeah i kind of want to get some brain freezes i'll crack packs for that that's fun mm -hmm. and it's you know, the people that the secret layers are for, yep. the people that love this really cool stuff. And it is something that is so pervasive in the game that I don't think necessarily always gets the credit it's due because it is something that, you know, when you talk about market manipulation, they're not behind it. When you talk about surges in price or surges in a deck's playability in the metagame, they're not part of it. Yeah. But Wizards of the Coast is keenly aware that they are part of the fabric of the game, from gameplay to finance to everything. Mm -hmm. And I think it's one of those things that people need to take cues from them. Because, look, it, say what you will about Wizards and what they get wrong. This is one thing I emphatically believe they got right. Absolutely. And I think some of it comes from the fact that, like, when you talk about the Invisibles, it might seem like a pejorative term. Like, there's, yeah. that for whatever reason, these aren't the same kind or quality players that you find at FNM, and, and that's not the case. I don't know many whales in this space, but the majority of them do not play this game. Or if they do, they don't play at FNMs. They play at home with their friends because that's where you can drink beer. Yeah. Which is really what they're all about. Yep. And, you know... Whales are definitely a market space. You touched on it with Secret Layers. Those are the ones that are going to be buying a lot of boxes. But the Invisible spans a gamut, and I think there, if if people are thinking about them in any kind of negative way, you need to kind of distance yourself from from that idea because the Invisibles keep this game going. There's there's nothing wrong with being an Invisible. Going back to the top of the episode, 
almost everybody started this this game the same way. They received cards or a deck, etc., from somebody else, and they just went home and played and played at the cafeteria, played with friends after school, wherever, college, etc. It doesn't matter. For a while, you were an invisible. Yep. That's it. And then for a lot of us, it became life. We moved beyond that and grew past that. Mm-hmm. The invisibles are the large majority of people that just didn't. Yep. And I, I think it's awesome. You have to recognize it, and it's something that does deserve, you know, to be talked about, especially in different avenues. Uh, from an LGS standpoint, you know, it's incredibly important to think about. From an individual finance standpoint, it's a little more difficult because, like I said, whether or not you you want to figure them in when you're going to pre-releases to trade, like that's kind of uh, up to you. If you want to set another binder aside, kind of, you know, whatever. This is more speaking to people that want to work you know, at, at the LGS level and then deeper conversation like this, this tweet thread kind of goes through, which is just like, you have to remember as you sit here and complain about the RC and the decisions they're making, they too are actually thinking about the invisibles like Watsi does. So like, yeah, Iona does seem like a terrible band because anybody that's just going to slam jam that, that creature out early on to ruin somebody's experience is, is basically sitting down against an invisible and that's the yep. standpoint they kind of took on that one and we harped on it when they banned it because it just seems like poor social contracting but at the end of the day who is that contract with most likely somebody that wasn't invisible yep so keep it in mind anything else from the uh lgs standpoint uh i think one of the most important things is you know as an lgs you expect winter is going to be kind of a dead time for you. You're not going to have as many events because kids go back for college yep. or whatever, or, you know, maybe you're a bit busier because kids come back from college, but they're spending a lot of time with family. And it's a time where historically cards lose value. The invisibles get you through that season. When I talk about, you know, they're kind of your earnings floor. They're the people that are coming in and they're, you know, Literally, their grandma comes in and says, hey, my grandson plays this game. I don't know anything about it. What do I get? Guess what? That's an invisible. That's someone who explicitly said, I want a Magic the Gathering deck to someone. Rather than just say, I want money to buy singles, they want the new commander product. Mm -hmm. They want a few booster packs. Those people are the ones that are your bread and butter when you are at your worst as an LGS. Because you don't have the customer base you're relying upon necessarily in the summer months. You don't necessarily have those people coming in. You don't have 30-person modern on a Thursday. It's down to like 15. Those are the people that get you through those times. And those are, in my opinion, some of the most loyal customers. Maybe not, like you said, to the store, but to the game. And those that is the reason that those people will get you through that time. Mm -hmm. Because whatever rules changes come, you know, damage doesn't use the stack all of a sudden and the game is strictly worse for fifteen years and still is. But they're still playing. Yep. They're still buying those products. Absolutely. And that's what gets you through those downtimes. Yep. That's that's the last thing I have from the LGS side. Yep. Uh, absolutely and I, I think there's also something uh, interesting to know like every now and then it'll come up in pop culture like it'll float through something it's like you wouldn't believe what we caught like the kids on the set of Cobra Kai doing jamming magic and from the looks of it pre-cons at the time yep pro tip 
you'll never guess what most of the bands on the Vans Warped Tour did as well. They yeah. also jammed Magic in their off time. It's not uncommon. Like, yeah. uh, I haven't seen MC Chris in a while, but I used to just bring him Magic product all the time. Just, I have a, like... Post Malone. Yep. Was now, in yeah. an LGS working, basically. Yep. Uh, I think the first time I saw MC Chris was, like, 2005, and I was like, oh, I'll bring my DCI card because it was the clear one at the time, and it, like... It was so early on in the tour, and I brought it to him, and he was, like, almost exacerbating. He's like, you, you have no idea how many of these I signed. <laughs> just like, all right, dude. Sorry, man. No, no, it was cool. Like, he was happy about it. Yeah. He was just like, another one? Shit. <laughs> like, there are a That's lot, amazing. There are a lot of you fucks out here. Like, yeah, yeah, there yeah. are. It's the last DCI card I think I we received as players, the clear one with, like, little wood grain on it, and that's, yeah. it's in a case somewhere with some zombie tokens that he signed. Oh man, those were the days. Every now and then it pops, it hits in pop culture, and there are a lot of these people who just like don't have the time to sit down in an LGS, don't have the desire to. You know, sometimes they just don't want to be recognized, so they just play yep. at home, and thus that makes them an invisible. And here we are. Here we are for picks. Uh, I don't know who went first last week. I don't think. I so. think you did, okay. so I'll go first this time. Take it away. Uh, if you watched Worlds, you heard about this card. If you have half a brain, you heard about this card. Expressive iteration. Specifically, I'm saying the promo pack version. Why when it's the most expensive? Well, because those packs are still coming out, and they'll tank a little bit. Not necessarily tank, but I think we'll see them in about the $9 to $10 range. Right now, foils are sitting at about $16.50 low, plus shipping. Yep. If you've played this card, if you've seen this card played... You know this card is insane. This card is the Nutter Butters. We're also at a point where our foil market, on according to stocks, is at about $19. So we're starting to see that downward trend in price. This card sees play everywhere. Legacy, Modern, Standard, EDH. I think long term, you're not looking at probably like a $20 to $30 buy list for maybe six to eight months at least. And that's if we see modern paper magic return to scale. This card is great in EDH, though. Yes. It's in your Spellslinger formats. It does everything you want it to do. Top three cards, hand, exile, bottom. It's great card filtering and colors that love card filtering and love being able to play spells. So Card Kingdom right now is sitting at around 760 not buying a whole lot of them. Card Kingdom also happens to be an LGS. So they've probably got packs and packs of these things sitting around. I think if you can pick it up, trade at the end of the night after the pack's given out at FNM, yep. great, do it. Trade it at 10 to 15 all day long. But I think that realistically, rather than six to eight months, we're probably looking at a timeline of about eight to 10. Okay. Now, the reason I say that is because the modern meta is going to take some time to shake out. So even if we do see Paper Magic return at a large scale in early 2022, I think we're, conservatively we'll see the meta start to shift about three to four months after that. So you're looking at probably eight to ten months that we'll see this card finally settle into an archetype. Until then, the price is going to be a little bit more volatile. I think in the short term, it does tank a little bit, tank mm -hmm. lower. But I think that once modern hits in paper, be careful because a lot of these cards are going to fluctuate all over the place. 
because the meta is going to be wild. There's going to be a bunch of stuff that people haven't tried before that they're experimenting with that's going to go on camera and do well and be a flash in the pan. Similar to when uh, Grixis Control showed a one with Grixis Control and he was like, don't play this deck. It's a Pro Tour deck. Yep, yeah, yeah. That's what we're going to see when Modern returns. So a bit more conservatively, I'd say you're looking at probably for me, I'd be comfortable with about an 8 to 10 month timeline on this card. Now, that's for Modern. If you're doing this for EDH, there's no timeline. Yeah. This card, this this promo will only go up long term. We'll probably get a Mystical Archive equivalent of this card at some point. We'll probably see it in a secret lair. I think it's foolish to plan for those things. It's good to be aware of them. But I think that long term, this is a card that's going to go in every single red-blue EDH deck. Ever. Yeah. Don't care what you're doing. You can be in red-blue aggro. You still want this card in your deck. You just do. It's that good. It's insane. Uh, When it makes it down to vintage, you should probably take heed. And that's where we see it. Even as a one-of, because that's just generally what power and 51 one ofs like yeah it's it can't be understated how good this card is and what it does and i don't think it's necessarily good enough to warrant a banning anywhere or the cards around it will receive a banning in an effort to call the card so i just you know the only way this card loses power and value over time is if formats warp in such a way that it becomes an unplayable card and i just don't see that happening at any point in time right now you see this card more often alongside dragon raids channeler than you do ragavan because there are a number of is it decks in modern and not everyone runs ragavan but almost everyone does run dragon raids channeler and similarly in legacy we have basically blue red delver running around again and this is a card that helps power through that exactly. It just helps set up and power that deck. And I think it's a powerhouse card. Like Rip Apart, when we were looking at it earlier, it has an incredible amount of flexibility. It helps set up your game state. It helps you play through. And it's just going to be such a foundational element to all formats in the game that getting in earlier rather than later is... Uh, in regards to promo pack offering, a little later. But you know what I yeah. mean. You don't want to be waiting nine to 12 months to be trying to get in now is when you would want to do it exactly and i i think it's something that you know in whatever quantity you want because it does see so much playing vintage and edh that if you get one if you get three it's not something you necessarily need to move as a play set you know whereas there are certain cards where when you get them you only want a four of yeah this sees playing enough formats as a unique instance of a card that any amount is okay yep yeah any amount whatsoever exactly and you mentioned modern being in flux and the same thing's going to go for legacy people are looking for some action to be taken and if anything is done in either format be it that the meta shakes out or action is taken by watsi the opportunity for this card to change from a four to a two of or vice versa becomes uh, a lot larger you might you know you might not need all four is basically what it comes down to or you might need four up from two depending on what you're doing so it's like there's a little bit in there as well and that kind of speaks to exactly what you said any you know any amount i'll do you yep so what you got this week i'm sticking with uh, my tried and true edh and i'm going with uh sort of the anim sort of the animist from uh origins it's just the version i've been watching for the longest amount of time and it's a card that just became you know 
again, EDH foundation, so to speak, because of what it does. The plus one, plus one is almost inconsequential, but whenever you attack with the creature it's equipped to, you search your library for a basic land card, put it onto the battlefield, tap and shuffle your library. So it's a free rampant growth every time you know your creature attacks. I started watching this card not that long ago, towards the end of August. CK was buying 17 at $3.50. There's uh, 269th nice, on TCG player for $7.12. And uh, as of picking this card, yes, the CK Bylas is now 62 at $4. And I want to repeat that. They were buying 17 at $3.50 at the end of August. And it is now the middle of October. And they are buying 62 at $4. Then there are 233 on TCG Player at LP or better at a price of $5.42. And I want to repeat that again. There were 269 at $7.12, and they're now 233 at $5.42. So the closed market is going up while the open market is going down. And this is where we want to be right now. It's a little weird to think about, but this is exactly where we want to be. I'll get to that, though. So why Sword? Sword originally went on my list because it's eminently playable within any deck that wants to enter combat and also requires a smidge of ramp. So the previous price point might have depressed quote-unquote playability here, especially after the spike that came with Zendikar rising and the new landfall options afforded to you. So I'll bring back the stocks graph again, and you can see that it was on a steady uptick. Basically for years, we dropped a little bit heading into Akoria, and then we just shot up almost vertical it is like an untenable slope at zendikar rising and we ride that out until afr when we hit a reprint and now we we finally dropped off of a slope that was obviously untenable and we're going to see a little bit of a rise coming out of this so you know within the format this is a low mana value continuous ramp in a color agnostic form which provides a different value proposition to a number of decks than gilda's Gilded Lotus, a pick I made before, where they don't need a quote-unquote burst of ramp and can appreciate smooth acceleration. So Gilded Lotus is five and makes three, right? So that's just going to like shoot you up. It's the same thing as Thran Dynamo and stuff like that, where you want to be a little, you can afford to be a little more smooth with what you're doing because you're playing up and down the curve. You're not trying to go from like four to eight or four to nine. So you can, you can take your time here. Uh, it's also a premier piece in more casual equipment-based decks helmed by a number of different commanders ranging from Arden paired with various options to Akiri to Nihiri the Lithomancer, which is the mono-white planeswalker. As a piece of equipment, it's not pivotal, sorry, pivotal in these decks, but it does allow them to quote-unquote again keep up and eventually make multiple plays in a turn. So it's just, you know, allows you to just kind of keep trucking along. And a lot of these decks, I'll actually bring that up on stocks real quick so we can see... Oh, not socks, sorry, EDH rec. You know, here's Arden, the number one commander, paired with Rebek. We have Akiri, Le, both Fearless Voyager and Line Slinger, uh, with multiple pairings. Nihiri Lithomancer. And you can see that Arden is here a number of times with a number of pairings. You know, these color pairs really don't afford ramp options outside of something like this Wayfarer's Bauble uh, and Expedition Map, which isn't necessarily ramp unless you're getting like Ancient Tomb or something like this. Uh, another easy call out is, is any deck centered around landfall triggers allowing a lot of new cards from Zendikar Rising to shine and not just Omnath, Omnath 
but cards like Felidar Retreat and Valakut Explora Exploration alongside Commander Stalwarts like Rampaging Balos and Avengers Zendikar. And a lot of these cards have kind of fallen down the list on EDH Rex, but the more you dig through on like MTG decks, that's where you're going to see this because those are actual individual deck lists. They're no longer aggregates. You don't have to dive through. You can see it right there. And that was basically the jump and the reason for that jump at Zendikar Rising release. We had all this great landfall stuff happen or drop. And it's just people looking for more ways to put lands into play. More ways, more ways, more ways. So timeline on this. As I mentioned, the price on the open market has been tumbling, but quantity has also been actually moving. It's been selling alongside increases on the vendor buy list quantity and price. So sort of hearth and home, interesting to think about, is currently pulling focus away from this card. And the idea that the AFR Commander reprint has quote unquote flooded the market look to be the cause of the tumble, and I believe we'll see a price correction in a short amount of time to pull us out of the nosedive we're in. The price trend can be seen in the retrace and like trending back up and renewed, gro uh, renewed growth after both the Commander 2017 reprint as well as the Theros Beyond Death promo pack reprint tumbles. So if you would take a look at the stocks graph again, you could again track that. It takes a nosedive and then picks right back up. So buying it now allows us to buy into the situation and get ahead of the correction I'd expect to see after the holiday season. So the next four to six months is when I expect to see the correction. And there's even an immediate opportunity for arbitrage as of mid-October. But I expect that to disappear as the race to the bottom on TCG Player seems to have basically come to an end. So I know I just kind of rushed through it, but six months-ish is actually where I ex start to expect to see buy-in now returning on investment. I, I think, you know, when you touch on how that ceiling was untenable, uh, this is one thing I may disagree with you on, because if we go long enough without a reprint, and honestly, we just got a fat reprint of this card, obviously. Yeah. But I think that we could see, you know, this tells us what the ceiling is on this card. It could potentially hit 10 to $15 sometime within the next year to 18 months. And I think that it doesn't necessarily take a lot of encouragement. It is something that just takes like landfall mm -hmm. or a similar mechanic, which is when we saw the price skyrocket. If we get some kind of lands matter theme, you don't want to be caught holding the bag on not having this card mm -hmm. because it is something at that point that you can almost immediately profitably buy list. Yes. Uh, now, is that long term? Oh, maybe you're right. It is untenable long term. But I think that this is something that, to me, from a design perspective, it seems like the type of thing that Wizards thinks is completely innocuous. Mm -hmm. That really is, unless they print something that goes into EDH alongside this card and just makes it absurd yep. all of a sudden. Yep. Like, if we get Landfall Lightning Bolt, this card's ridiculous. And we could see that. Oh, yeah. A absolutely. I spent a little bit of time digging around just to make sure I wasn't missing anything with Zendikar Rising. And Felidar Treat isn't like, and Valakut Exploration aren't the most interesting things you could be doing with it. They just seem to be the most common things you could be doing with it. Yeah. So there's obviously a, a lot that can that can go on. And Valakut Exploration is kind of like the lightning bolt that you're saying, because the landfall triggers and every card you don't play just pops your opponents. So... We're not quite there. We're not literally at at landfall lightning bolt. That when you're not talking about Valakut, but yeah, yeah. I, I understand what you're saying. The the a ten to fifteen dollar ceiling wouldn't surprise me as long as the slope of price 
was more gradual than we sought. Yeah. So yeah, it was the sudden spike is the thing, and it's interesting if you look at the foil uh, price. The foil lagged behind by a good month. Yeah. Compared to the non-foil, actually no, like six months. It was October we saw the surge in the non-foil, and we didn't see the surge in the foil until March. Yeah. So, yeah, you're probably right. Untenable if it's a sudden surge like that, for sure. Yeah. I I can't imagine that this card doesn't command a premium over time because everything yeah. you said I believe in. It's innocuous. I don't think we're going to really get it in the standard set anymore because it just didn't play. I think it becomes a supplemental piece over time, and it will, as it dries up, just become a part of the format and disappear into the Aether and hold a 10 to $15 price point. Yep. So that's my pick, and I'm glad I was finally able to check this one off the list because checking in on it like every few days to weeks, I just started to get anxious because I was just watching it heading into... Uh, like Zendikar Rising all the way through AFR, just watching it up, 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 up. Like I'm just, this is another one of those that I just missed because everybody bought in all of a sudden. Like I just didn't like the price yep. trends for a while, so I just never brought it up on the cast. And just like with As Foretold, a card that I'd had on my list for like months before uh, MH2, it just got bought out from underneath me. So I was just, I was saddened again. <laughs> Yeah. To see that a card that I've been monitoring for a pick just all of a sudden got like spiked oh, to hell and back. Gone. Yeah, so I'm really excited that I'm finally able to like dust this off and like you know bring it to the pod. For sure, I I think it's super solid. Yeah, you know maybe maybe in a couple months we'll be looking at Sword of Hearth and Home the uh, the pairing to this one. Yeah, but uh, I think that's it for me this week. Is there anything else you want to go add on, or we get to? Oh, we are golden. Right, so thanks for listening, everybody. We are at MTG Cabalcast on Facebook, YouTube, Patreon, and Twitter. The podcast is available on Audible, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts. If you want to find us individually on Twitter, I am Halt. I am Reptar. You are at Thirsty Sizzler. We'll see you guys next week. <laughs>